Life's Everyday Mystery Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. Well, welcome and aboard. And thorium, and thulium, and thallium. And uh, we're making history today in uh, some fashion because the uh, authorities on high have decreed that the uh, number of people going into the studio should be decreased, I guess, to zero. And uh, I'm now equipped to talk to you uh, from my office. And uh, I have, I think, a properly functioning mic and uh, a gizmo that fits into the computer. And through the magic of electronics, uh, uh, I am doing this as if we were in the studio. Hope it sounds uh, just as good. We'll see just uh, how it works when uh, we have to take your calls. And we will do that, of course. Uh, 514-790-0800 uh, is the phone number. Well, first of all, let me toss out a question, as I usually do. And we have one left over from last week. What is meant by climacteric fruits? What are climacteric fruits? That's the leftover question, but I have a new one to throw your way as well. During the Second World War, a German submarine had to be abandoned and sank off the coast of uh, Scotland because the captain of the submarine went to the toilet. What happened? How did the captain of the submarine going to the toilet lead to the... Uh, abandoning of that submarine with the loss of four lives and the rest of the men had to get into uh, lifeboats. What is the story there? So if you know the answer to that, because this indeed is an intriguing story, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. Uh, I asked a question this morning about the link between uh, wine and cheese and sourdough bread and kimchi other foods like that, and I wanted to know what was the common feature here. Well, common feature is that these are all fermented foods. And these days, there's a great deal of talk, of course, in scientific circles about fermented foods. So let's discuss this uh, a little bit. Let me start by going to South Korea. Well, figuratively, of course. Anyway, it wasn't easy, but South Korean researchers finally managed to recruit 12 women between the ages of 20 and 30 who agreed to be isolated in a dormitory for a week. They agreed to eat a very restricted diet, engage in minimal activity, and provide daily samples of their feces. All of this for the sake of science. The intent of the trial was to investigate any effect on the microbial population of the gut, depending on the amount of kimchi consumed. And this would be tested by assaying their fecal matter and uh, looking for remnants of, uh, of bacteria. As you probably know, kimchi is the national dish of Korea, and it is consumed at virtually every meal, often on a bed of rice. It is made by fermenting Chinese cabbage. That's just a variety of, of cabbage. That's the main ingredient. And it's seasoned with a mix of dried red pepper powder, onion, garlic, and often some seafood 
And uh, that fermentation goes on for about two weeks at a temperature of four degrees Celsius. Fermentation, what is it? Fermented foods and beverages have been staples of the human diet since the dawn of civilization. So what are these? Let me try a simple definition on you. Fermentable foods are consumable items produced through the controlled growth of microbes such as yeasts and bacteria. The simplest example would be the production of wine. As you know, yeast occurs on the grape. That's that white stuff that you see on the surface of the grape. And uh, during fermentation, the yeast converts sugar to alcohol and to carbon dioxide. In kimchi, it's not yeast. It's a variety of bacteria that fall into the category of lactic acid bacteria. For the obvious reason, they produce lactic acid from the carbohydrates that are found in the vegetable components. Well, lactic acid acts as a preservative. It inhibits the growth of disease-causing organisms in the kimchi. And at the same time, it adds that characteristic sour taste. More interestingly, the bacteria migrate into the small intestine through the stomach, and there they compete with potentially pathogenic, that is disease-causing bacteria, for nourishment. Well, what is that nourishment? That nourishment comes from components of our food supply that defy normal digestion. Basically, indigestible carbohydrates like cellulose-resistant starch, we call these fiber. So fiber is the, the stuff in our food supply that we cannot digest. Our digestive system cannot break it down. So eventually it ends up being eliminated through the feces. Well, bacteria, lactic acid bacteria in our gut look upon fiber as tasty morsels. And if these good lactic acid bacteria, as we call them, are present in great enough numbers, they can starve out the competing bad microbes, the disease-causing ones, because they all compete for the same food supply. And if there are more of the good bacteria, it means that the bad bacteria are going to be squeezed out. Now, furthermore, when these good bacteria metabolize the fiber, they produce bacterial poop. And that contains short-chain fatty acids, acetic acid, uh, butanoic acid, propionic acid. These short-chain fatty acids are then absorbed into the bloodstream, where they produce a variety of effects, including reducing inflammation, which means that they basically have a role to play in the immune system, a beneficial role to play. Well, kimchi is not only a source of a variety of these good lactic acid-producing bacteria, it is also loaded with fiber, and that's the source of food for these bacteria. So the bacteria that have these beneficial properties are called probiotics, and the nutrients that enhance their ability to multiply are prebiotics. So the lactic acid bacteria are what we call probiotics, and the, the cellulose and the resistant starch that is found in the vegetables, those are the prebiotics that the probiotic bacteria feed on. Now, here's the interesting thing. Kimchi has both. It is both a probiotic and it also has prebiotics. So it is called a symbiotic. Okay, now back to our uh, study in Korea. <clears throat> the women 
uh, in this study, the 12 women were divided into two groups. They ate either a high kimchi diet or a low kimchi diet. Other than that, they ate the same thing, uh, which was basically a low-calorie uh, diet to make sure that, that whatever effect was being noted was, was essentially the effect of, of the kimchi. So what they did then, and strange things that researchers do, they uh, analyzed the fecal output of these ladies. And it's quite a complex analysis because they had to isolate from there the uh, variety of genes uh, that are remnants of, of bacteria. And based upon those genes, they were able to determine exactly which kind of bacteria were present. And therefore, they determined that there were actually more lactic acid bacteria in the high kimchi group. And this was a beneficial, this is a, a beneficial thing because the more of these good bacteria are produced, the better our digestive system works, the more short-chain fatty acids are produced, which uh, lead to better immune function. So we have a story here, uh, which is an intriguing one, uh, of fermented foods. And of course, this goes not only for kimchi, it goes for the sourdough bread, it goes for tempeh, many other fermented foods, that they can have these beneficial effects. <clears throat> there is some warning to be had, though, uh, because of the potential salt content. Fermented foods tend to be very, very high in salt because at first salt is added to prevent the growth of disease-causing bacteria before the lacto, uh, lactic acid-producing bacteria kick in. Anyway, interesting story out of... Uh, Korea about uh, kimchi. I've uh, I've tried it a couple of times, and uh, maybe now I'll have another go at it. Although I have to be a little bit careful because I understand that some types of kimchi uh, do have some seafood uh, uh, spice or remnants added to it. And because of my fish allergy, I want to be careful with that. Although my allergy is not not very significant, but uh, I want to look on the label for a kimchi that doesn't have any uh, fish components. <laughs> Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Miracles from molecules are dawning every day. Discoveries for happiness in a fabulous array. Yes, there certainly seems to be a never-ending search for miracles, and we're looking for a miracle to try to combat COVID-19. And obviously, we cannot go through a show these days without uh, talking about COVID-19 because there is new information coming out all the time. This past week was dominated by this uh, press release about the link between colchicine, the gout drug, and COVID-19. And uh, it's interesting, but it also raises, uh, for me at least, uh, a few alarms because what we have here is science by press release. 
Of course, proper science practice dictates that details of any study and the results should be submitted to a journal uh, so that they can be reviewed by peers before they're widely publicized. However, what we had here from Montreal Heart Institute, which obviously is a very reputable establishment, uh, but what we had here was a press conference, and uh, that was held before we had any details of the study. We now have some more details of the study because it it was uh, released in what is called a preprint, although it has not yet been uh, uh, peer-reviewed. And that, of course, is, is a concern because until experts have had a look at this, uh, it's hard to know what to make of it. But in any case, they uh, looked at uh, a large number of subjects. I mean, you know, statistically, 4,488 subjects is a, a big enough number to do scientific studies uh, on. And uh, they either had symptoms of COVID or had had a positive uh, PCR uh, test for uh, the virus. And the primary goal of the study was to determine if administering colchicine for 30 days would prevent hospitalization or death more effectively than a placebo. Why colchicine? I mean, there is reason uh, to take a look at this. Colchicine is a time-honored remedy for gout. It has an anti-inflammatory effect. And of course, the complications of COVID-19 can be due to excess inflammation So anything that has an anti-inflammatory effect is worthwhile uh, looking at. Well, one of the the first things that I I noticed in the press release, though, which was quite concerning, was the term approaching statistical significance. And that raises a red flag. I mean, results are either statistically significant or they're not. And, you know, it's the old story. You can't be a little bit pregnant. You either are or you are not. Uh, so therefore saying that the total deaths and hospitalizations were reduced by 21% is not justified because this is not based on results that meet the criterion of statistical significance. Now, there are other numbers here, other pieces of data that do apparently have statistical significance. And um, that's the 25% reduction in hospitalization and 50% reduction in the need for mechanical ventilation and the reduction in deaths by 44%. So these seem to be statistically significant, uh, but reporting differences by percentages can be very misleading. Uh, i give you an example. It may sound very impressive to learn that you can reduce your chance of being struck by lightning in a storm by 100% if you don't use an umbrella, because, of course, an umbrella can attract lightning. But is this really of any practical importance? Because the fact is that the chance of being struck by lightning is tiny in the first place. So even if you reduce that risk by 100%, it doesn't have much meaning. Similarly, you can increase your chance of winning a lottery by 100% if you purchase two tickets instead of one. But again, that has minimal practical significance. So we want to see the the real numbers here. And uh, after the press conference or the press release, they did release a so-called preprint, which has not been peer-reviewed, but that did allow somewhat closer scrutiny of uh, of the data. So out of 2,235 subjects in the Colchicine group, 101, which is 4.5%, were hospitalized compared to 128, which is 5.7% in the placebo group. Well, that's a 25% reduction looking at the difference between 4.5 and 5.7, right? 
But in practical terms, it means that out of every 100 people treated with colchicine, one will be saved from hospitalization. So that really is not quite the breakthrough that was described in the in the press release. Uh, there's other concerns. Colchicine is not exactly, you know, risk-free. Uh, diarrhea is a well-known side effect. And also, uh, in the study, they did report an increased risk of formation of blood clots, which, of course, is, is a concern, especially with cases of, of uh, COVID. And uh, then uh, there's the possibility of colchicine interacting with other medications. For example, it is one of those meds that should not be taken with grapefruit juice because its effect will be increased by the grapefruit juice. It should not be taken together with some antibiotics like erythromycin or uh, uh, anti-rejection drugs like cyclosporin or a number of antivirals. And someone who has kidney or liver disease may not metabolize it uh, well either. So there are those uh, issues that have to be taken into uh, account. So we will wait until the data is submitted for proper peer review, where experts who really are, are knowledgeable about statistics will look at it and uh, will know really what to make of it. Uh, it is certainly interesting. It's intriguing. I, I would put it into the category of encouraging. But until we have you know, peer review, uh, we really don't have the bottom line uh, about this. I, I don't think that the time has come for people who uh, suspect that they may have COVID-19 symptoms or who have tested positive uh, for uh, the virus to start knocking on physician's door for a prescription for colchicine. And indeed, the medical authorities have uh, decidedly said that this should not be happening that uh, until uh, more information is gathered, uh, there uh, should not be uh, random prescribing of, of colchicine for uh, symptoms of, of COVID, and certainly not for people who have just had a positive test. So anyway, that's where this story stands. Uh, we'll keep you apprised, of course, uh, with any new developments. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Uh, we're going to take a break for the news. And... Uh, We'll be back then uh, because I see that uh, there are callers on the line who have uh, potential answers to my questions. And I also want to tell you about another vaccine that is coming our way from uh, a vaccine-producing company called Novavax. So uh, there's possibly some good news there. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, before I tell you about the Novavax uh, vaccine's potential, uh, let me just hit the lines here because uh, some of you have been waiting a long time. So let's go to Michael. Hey, Michael. It's only been half an hour. It's okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, what Almost else do you time. have to do with your life? Almost right? had time to take a nap. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. the, story, the story about the submarine and uh, yeah. just to refresh our, mem our memories. Uh, 
what happened? So the question about the submarine was uh, about a German submarine that uh, uh, was sunk actually by uh, by the Brits off the uh, coast of Scotland when it had to surface uh, because the captain had gone to the bathroom and that created a problem. Okay. Where and the subway, the, where the submarine had to be abandoned. So what happened? Uh, here's a lucky guess. I don't know. Uh, because he had to go to the bathroom, he had to flush. And by flushing, it changed the water pressure, and that meant water would go into the sub in the, uh, where it wasn't supposed to go, and it would sink it. Uh, you're you're Close. a little Another bit cigar? on the right track. Okay, but uh, it's not exactly it. There, mm-hmm. there was. Uh, uh, you're quite right that it had to do with the flushing, but yeah. that uh, that basically unleashed a chemical reaction and it was the 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 product of that reaction that forced the abandoning of the sub so we're looking uh-huh. for, for a bit more detail the okay but that reaction. was that was okay. a good good shot at it was a good shot <laughs> yeah, thank good you shot okay all right go back to napping all right uh, vim i think is on the line hi dr joe and hi. uh your, your technology is working great by the way Oh, good, good. And you even made it onto the air, so it works. Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, I'd like to complete um, the question about the submarine. Okay. Uh, apparently, well, the this was a very complicated toilet. Uh, uh, the way it was designed, and the captain couldn't figure out how to use it. Uh, so he called for assistance, and an engineer came in, and accidentally opened a valve, and uh, the sewage and seawater came in to the submarine, and uh, the reaction with the batteries caused um, chlorine gas uh, to be created, and uh, that's why they had to evacuate. Right now, why would why would seawater getting into the batteries cause chlorine gas to be formed? Uh, the batteries, what, what was in the batteries reacted to the salt? Yes, that's, uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're basically right. Now I'll give you a bit more, uh, detail on this because the chemistry is very interesting. Right. Uh, the bat, the batteries were, uh, what we call lead acid batteries, the same kind of batteries that, that we have in, in a car, obviously mm-hmm. much bigger and more of them in, in submarine. Uh, in a submarine, of course, you know, you can't burn fuel, right, for energy. So it, all the lighting is based on, uh, on batteries. Yeah. And, uh, in, in, in such a battery, you need an electrolyte in order for the current to flow from one electrode to the other. And that electrolyte is, is sulfuric acid. But if you, uh, get sodium chloride, that is salt, into there together with the uh, with the sulfuric acid, uh, the chlorine, the chloride will be attracted to the positive electrode, and there it will give up electrons and be converted into chlorine gas. Uh, and chlorine okay. gas, of course, is is highly toxic. Yeah. So when they started to notice the chlorine gas, they had to surface, and as soon as they surfaced, they were spotted by uh, the British Air Force. And uh, they, uh, the submarine was sunk. Four, four yeah. of the men died, and uh, his, uh, the, the rest were rescued uh, and went, ended up in, in prisoner of war camps. It's a very interesting story. But I tell you uh, what is even more intriguing about this: 
is that it has a connection to a quack device that is widely sold uh, these days. And that is this foot bath that supposedly draws toxins out of your system. And you sit there with your feet in this bath, which has a pair of electrodes uh, in it, and you plug mm-hmm. this in, in into the wall. And um, there's no, no color uh, of the water until you put your feet into it. And as soon as you put your feet into it, it becomes dark and, and sludgy. And the message is that this is, these are the toxins that are being uh, sucked out of your body, which is total nonsense. Yeah. Because what, what happens here is that, uh, when you put your feet into it, your feet have always some sweat on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- that sweat contains salts, electrolytes. So yeah. it increases the, the uh, current that goes through this electrolytic cell, which is, is, uh, is what it is. And one of the electrodes is made of iron. And uh, that forms uh, iron oxide because of this uh, reaction. And iron oxide is rust. So that's exactly what you see being formed here. That sludge is just rust. Yeah. It's so it's a very, very similar to, you know, what uh, what happened in, in the submarine, except uh, in, in the instead of um, uh, sodium chloride from the ocean, it's it's salts from your uh, sweat that are right. allowing this chemical reaction. And although you do sweat some sodium chloride, the amount of chlorine produced would, would be not enough to cause any kind of harm. But right. the, uh, the rust that is produced, uh, because you also are forming oxygen when you break water down into oxygen and hydrogen, the oxygen reacts with the iron and you get this, this rust. And people pay six, seven hundred dollars, believe it or not, for this device. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And it is, it is promoted as, uh, you know, uh, basically a treatment for various kinds of diseases by removing the toxins that supposedly cause those diseases out of the body. It's a total, total scam. And, uh, unfortunately, people are taken in. But I tell you a little footnote to this story, and that is that I have spoken to people who have done this, and they will tell you that they feel much better after. Now, that, of course, is the placebo effect. Right. This right. Does absolutely nothing. Yeah. But, uh, you know, their, their perception is that something has happened. Okay. So okay. that's very good. So basically, I wanted to we try have, the uh, other question yeah. as well. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, Climacteric these, fruits. These, yeah, climacteric fruits, uh, they um, ripen after picking them because they produ- produce more ethylene. Yes, that, that is exactly it. Very good. You're, you're knowledgeable in science, uh, apparently. All right, that is exactly what... Uh, well, what I'm, a, I'm a teacher, but a business teacher. <laughs> but I, yeah. I, I, like, I always love science, yeah. Very good. Uh, yeah. Anyway, climacteric fruits continue to develop to maturity even after they are, they are picked. And tomatoes, peaches, plums, cantaloupe, bananas, and pears, and they ripen because they produce ethylene gas yeah. even after picking, and that's the gas mm-hmm. that ripens them. And non-climacteric right. fruits are, are things like cherries and grapes, oranges, raspberries, cucumbers, strawberries, zucchini. So if you get your unripe strawberries, there's no point in waiting for them to ripen because they they will not. Right. But uh, right. your bananas, of course, uh, your peaches, tomatoes will ripen. Tomatoes are a classic example. Tomatoes are, are routinely picked when they are green. Yeah. Because if they were picked while they're already ripe, they'll never make it. Uh, yeah. Because these days, of course, it has to be shipped long distances. They'll never make it. Yeah, so they're exactly. picked ripe. 
they pick green and they ripen uh, either when you store them at home or often they will be picked extremely green. And then when they get to their destination before being distributed to stores, uh, they will be put in a storage facility with enhanced ethylene in the atmosphere so that they will ripen and, and become red. And then right. they will be, uh, yeah. But yeah. Uh, the color is not necessarily indicative of the taste. So your tomato that you pick from your backyard in, uh, in August uh, mm-hmm. is going to be truly ripe and it will not only be red, but it will have all of the taste molecules in it as well. So yeah. even though the, the ones that are ripened, you know, in storage with ethylene may look good, but, uh, they still will taste like cardboard. Okay. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, all, all right. <laughs> okay. So thanks very much for your uh, contribution. All right. I still want to tell you about, uh, the, uh, Novavax vaccine that is uh, coming our way. And uh, there is some interesting uh, information there. Looks quite hopeful. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. What is the shape of the molecule? The protein molecule in question. We need the shape of the All right, let's see if we can understand how the Novavax vaccine works. Well, this is a, an American company, Novavax, a pharmaceutical company, and uh, they are also producing a, a vaccine. It's not on the market yet, but they are into phase three trials. This is a different platform totally uh, from the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine. It's different from Moderna. It's also different from the Oxford-AstraZeneca. Uh, uh, Although the the end result is essentially the same, all of these vaccines intend to uh, increase the concentration in in the bloodstream of the spike protein that is found on the uh, on the virus because that's the protein it uses to enter cells. So you want to prevent entry into cells, and you do that by by, uh, generating antibodies that will lock onto that spike protein, which is on the surface of the the virus, and prevent it from fitting into the so-called ACE2 receptor on cells. Uh, If I can give you a simple uh, analogy, if that spike protein on the surface of the virus is is the key that fits into the lock on cells so that it can gain entry and then begin replicating inside, uh, then the antibodies are are uh, molecules that latch onto that key, let's say to bend that key so that it will no longer fit the lock. And uh, the the way that uh, Novavax has gone about this is by concocting a vaccine that contains bits of this protein, bits of the spike protein. And the idea is that once this vaccine is uh, injected, enters the, the bloodstream, the immune system recognizes this as a foreign substance and generates antibodies to it. And the next time, if a real virus enters, the uh, antibodies will have learned to recognize a a piece of that spike protein 
and will then latch onto this spike protein on the virus and prevent it from engaging with, uh, with cells. That's the idea. And um, uh, Novavax now has carried out some early trials. And the encouraging thing here is that the vaccine seems to be effective against the British variant as well as against the South African variant. So they have um, a, a primary trial with 15,000 volunteers in the UK, and they showed that the vaccine was uh, 86% effective against the British variant. And in South Africa, 4,400 participants and 60% efficacy. This is uh, is encouraging. Uh, we will see exactly, you know, what the how the numbers turn out to be uh, once all of this is published and subjected to to peer review. But at least we have another candidate uh, vaccine, the Novavax. Of course, we also saw the Johnson and Johnson results that were released on uh, on Friday, and uh, those are encouraging as well. This is uh, uh, again. Uh, a different kind of platform from Pfizer and Moderna. It is uh, like the Oxford AstraZeneca. It uh, uses what is called a viral vector, uh, where they use a, a, an adenovirus, which is a virus that causes colds. They remove the uh, genetic machinery of that virus, and instead they implant some of the genes uh, from the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, and then when this uh, vaccine is uh, is injected, uh, the uh, machinery uh, will uh, engage. That is, the the genes that are now in the in the vaccine uh, will start the production of uh, uh, of the spike protein uh, in cells, and uh, antibodies will form and hopefully protect against uh, next time when the real virus is uh, is encountered. The uh, overall result was not as good as with uh, Pfizer and uh, and Moderna. Uh, they quote 66% efficacy in in, in general, uh, which uh, uh, kind of uh, you know sounds uh, um, obviously less encouraging than the 90% that we've seen with the other vaccines. However, what is noteworthy is that they showed an 85% reduction in hospitalization and in deaths. And really, that is what we are after. Uh, mild cases of COVID, you know, like flu-like symptoms, that you can cope with. It's the hospitalizations that have to be avoided and obviously the deaths. So the 85% is, 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 is pretty encouraging. But again, uh, we'll see how this plays out because it is not yet on the market. Uh, Johnson & Johnson is going to ask for emergency approval uh, probably as early as this week, which means that the vaccine may actually be out there uh, by the end of uh, February. So we will then have uh, uh, four possible vaccines. The AstraZeneca one has not been approved yet in Canada or, or in the U.S., so here so far we only have the uh, Moderna and the Pfizer and uh, if the Novavax uh, trials uh, are as encouraging as they first appear to be, then that looks like it's going to be the fourth vaccine that um, uh, that will appear. And obviously, the more vaccines we have, the more people uh, can be protected to to some degree. Uh, obviously, questions uh, come up, and they already, you know, people have been asking. 
what if I got the first uh, shot of Pfizer and it's no longer available, but Moderna is, can I get the second shot there? Or if Johnson & Johnson comes out, can you get the second shot there? So far, uh, there's absolutely no data to be able to give any kind of recommendation about that because nobody has uh, studied this. It is possible in, in theory that, that if you get the first Moderna or first Pfizer, the second one could be uh, from the, the other company. It's possible that that could work, but possible is not good enough in science. We have to have the evidence before any kind of recommendation is, is made. Okay. Uh, someone was also uh, asking uh, whether or not uh, sauerkraut would fall into the same category as, as kimchi. Well, yes, it is also fermented. It doesn't have all of the spices that kimchi has. And those spices also have uh, contributing factors because the fermentation process also releases interesting chemicals from those spices that can have an effect on the immune system. But nevertheless, I, I think sauerkraut is a good thing to incorporate into the diet. None of these should be consumed as if they were drugs. They should just be incorporated into the diet. And... Uh, with kimchi and with sauerkraut, what you have to watch is the sodium content. Remember that the uh, recommended maximum amount of sodium per day should be about 2,300 milligrams. And uh, it's very possible that if you have a, you know, a good helping of sauerkraut, you'll, you'll be approaching that. So take a look at the nutritional label, see exactly, you know, what uh, uh, it says about sodium content. Make sure that your daily intake of sodium does not go over 2300. But sauerkraut or kimchi can fit into that. You just have to watch what else you are uh, are taking. So that is it. Uh, we are running out of time here. I hope this worked well. It's, it um, worked well from here. I think the the uh, uh, connection sounds pretty good as far as I can tell from the earphone. I was able to get to the callers. I, I think, uh, unfortunately, I ran out of time for Angelo. Uh, maybe we can uh, get to his question next week. So that is it. Uh, for my first remote uh, broadcast, and I guess we will be doing exactly the same thing next week. So I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. Check out our website, mcgill.ca slash OSS. You can sign up for our free weekly newsletter there as well. And we will see you here, same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>